I hope that before you even sat down to enjoy the beautiful music, you enjoyed the beautiful decorations that we arranged, all of the bright colors outside, lining the sidewalks placed there by the gas company so that as you came in, you'd be filled with the Christmas spirit. We noticed those beginning to appear a couple weeks ago, and we knew when the porta potties came out, it was going to be a long haul. But then those beautiful orange things keeping you out of the giant pits in the ground. And Mimi and I were talking yesterday about how if we lived in the area, uh, we might decorate some of those things with lights or bows or that sort of thing. But what's going on, I finally asked one of the guys, I said, what, what is happening? How do you even have this many people on your payroll? And he said, they're going through the state. They're replacing old, dangerous pipes that take, you know, the dangerous natural gas into your homes with new pipes. And I thought that would never would have occurred to me. I'm glad somebody's on it. I never would have made that call and said, excuse me, I think we need to replace these. Why? Because they're out of sight. They're underground. They're not anything we see. In fact, the, the real eyesore happens when they're digging and pulling out your sidewalk and putting porta potties on the corner. You have to do that in order to get down into the problem area. And you know, the Bible is always doing that as well. People are saying, look at the outside, check me out. Quite righteous. I'm really put together. I have it all together. And the Bible says, no, look deeper. Jesus says, if you think that you have the law down pat because you haven't uh, committed adultery, look deeper into your heart. You haven't stolen, you haven't killed anyone, look for hate in your heart. And this text, this often read at Christmas text of Psalm 24 does the same thing. It says, look at the hands, which means the deeds of the person, and then look at what they say, the words that come from their mouth. Look at their speech, and then deeper yet into the heart. It's a psalm written by David, the greatest king that Israel had ever had, about an even greater king that was to come. And yes, there could be a greater king, because when you read about David's life, uh, didn't have clean hands. He often stained his hands, even with the blood of the innocent. He did not have perfectly pure lips that had never deceived. He had deceived in terrible ways, and his heart was not pure. His heart had been many times filled with covetousness or murderousness, and he had more than once given in to such things. And so there is a greater king to come. And it seems that the occasion that this psalm was written for is when they were taking the Ark of the Covenant, you've seen Indiana Jones, you know, and they're bringing it into Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is what they place in the Holy of Holies where God's presence, His Shekinah glory, rests between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And as he's doing this, it's especially triumphant because they've had some difficulty with this Ark. And he reminds them of that. He reminds them of where they come from at times like this. That Israel was selected. They didn't earn their place as God's chosen. They were chosen by no merit of their own. They were chosen by God to be blessed by him and to bless all the nations, that through them all the earth would be blessed. Not something they earned, but something that was bestowed, and they weren't even the most logical choice. They weren't the, the mightiest nation. They weren't the most advanced. You had the Hittite Empire. You had the Egyptians. No, they were just one guy when God called Israel he says to Abram, this, from our point of view, rando guy who's in Ur, he says, come out, leave your city, leave your father's house, I will make something of you. 
And so he comes out and, and God begins to build him. But even then, there's nothing incredibly impressive and regal about Israel at first. We see that they go down into Egypt. They're their slaves for centuries. And when God says, I'll show you what kind of God I am by taking you out of your slavery, bringing you out into a promised land, they grumble and rebel in ways so that they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then even when he says, all right, we're entering the land, he says, take the land by conquest. I'll be with you. It sort of peters out. They say, those Philistines look really tough. Let's just stop. And near the very end of that, there was a battle where they didn't consult God. They didn't look to the oracles. They just said, why don't we take the Ark of the Covenant? God always has us bring it with us. It's like a good luck charm. We can't lose if we bring it with us. And so they go off to fight by their own wisdom and smarts thinking the Ark of the Covenant will keep them safe. They lose the Ark. And ultimately, God in his grace and mercy lets them recover it. And that is why it's so triumphant, such a, a song of celebration, a triumphant return. When we read Psalm 24, it begins with, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. It starts with a proclamation that God created everyone and everything. That there are great men and women, but they're not the creator. You might think that you are quite put together, but you're not God. When we have this rhetorical question about who can enter into God's presence, we don't even qualify. David himself, he was great. He was very impressive and majestic. He was powerful, but he himself was not God, and he was not even the most logical choice, just like Israel, not the most logical choice to be the great king. When it was time to anoint a king, Samuel went to Jesse's house. Jesse was his father. He said, I'm here to anoint a king. Bring in your sons. Jesse didn't even bother bringing David in. He was like, not that kid. It's going to be one of these very impressive young men. He chose the one who was less likely. And even as his fame began to grow after he'd killed Goliath, after he'd begun to have a following, we see him doing very unkingly things, and, and his story is kind of a roller coaster. He's off in the wilderness hiding from Saul. He's, he's, he's got this motley crew of criminals who follow him, outlaws. He pretends at one point to be insane in order to spare his own life. In a sense, his story mirrored Israel's story in that he was anointed by God and promised something great, but we find him sort of wandering. And yet from Israel will come the Messiah, the one who will set his people free. From, from David's line will come this great king, the king of kings, who will defeat death and sin and crush the serpent's head. But not from the natural, impressive outgrowth of the top of the towering, flowering canopy of the mighty tree that is David's dynasty. Rather, we're told, from the stump of Jesse will come a little shoot, and that shoot will be this Messiah who will set us free. So David began with nothing in obscurity, and ultimately his legacy becomes nothing as well, a stump. And yet there is the promise there is the promise of someone who will come and restore the glory, the king of glory who will come. And so in this story, as in every story, there's not true hope, there's not true glory until Jesus enters the picture. 
You know, the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this psalm begins with the same idea. The earth is the Lord's, and he founded it. He, he founded it upon the sea, has established it upon the rivers. He writes this during a time of triumph. And so, if you just read through the rest of the psalms, you find David writes these things during times of difficulty and suffering. When times are tough, it is always a good idea to remind ourselves who God is and who we are. Why we are here, why we even exist, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To love Him, to serve Him, to know Him. When there are difficult times on the horizon or when you are in the midst of tribulation, much of the time, just reminding yourself once again who God is and who I am and why I am here can reestablish the right perspective bring everything back into place. We tend to think of it from our point of view, of course. If things aren't going our way, we say, God, you're messing up the story. You know, I've read a number of uh, different books on writing, and I, I used to go to all these different conferences to speak and stuff, and I would hear people talk about how the way to write a story is you've got to determine what your main character wants and then put obstacles in the path of him or her, and then through the story they get over the obstacles and they change and grow and this kind of thing. I don't think it's the best way to write a story, but we look at this we go, God, I'm the main character. This is what I want. You're messing up the story. How come I can't get it? You've got too many obstacles and they're too big. We've got to be reminded, as David reminds us here, you're not the main character of the story. We are not the main character of the Christmas story. We're not the main character of any of Scripture. We, we try to ascend. We read these words. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And we think, well, maybe me. And, and we try to ascend and plant our flag that we have accomplished something great. We, we try to ascend, whether by good intention or bad, we are not able to go up. We are not, it's a rhetorical question, who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? I'm not the answer, you're not the answer, not even David is the answer, and he was a man after God's own heart, and yet his own heart was prone to wander. When we confuse what is our purpose, what is the chief end of man, and say, rather than to enjoy God and glorify him, we, we say, well, perhaps it's for me to make the most of myself or to have a lot of fun or, or to leave the world a little better than how I found it. We always wind up trying to ascend in a foolish way, like the men of Babel. When God, after the great flood, said, spread out over the whole earth and populate it once again. And the people said, you know what we should do instead, though? build a tower and make for ourselves a great name. And we'll build a tower, we'll ascend right up into heaven. They thought they would ascend to heaven. And God looked down and went, <laughs> that's funny, and scattered them. When we confuse what our purpose is, the chief end of man, we often wind up doing what the Israelites did. when they took the Ark of the Covenant and said, it'll be our magic charm. We'll use God, the God of the universe, as a way to get what we want. Because after all, we are the main character of the story. But even if we're motivated by that good, God-given desire to reconnect with our Creator, we cannot ascend the hill into His presence. We wind up disconnected. We're already disconnected. That's what John 3 tells us. We're disconnected from our God, just like when Israel was in Egypt, just like when they were wandering in the wilderness or in exile in Babylon. 
And all the religions of the world say we have the way to climb up into the presence of God. You can get up the mountain. You can get there. And yet the scriptures tell us something else. When God was at the top of Mount Sinai, he said to Moses, tell the people, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Someone, someone can do it because we have the job description right here. Clean hands meaning no wicked deeds, none at all. A pure heart meaning not just the outside but down deep. Digging down into the, the, the depths to see if the, the natural gas pipes are corroded in the, in the core of who we are. If our hearts in any way are defiled. And to be without deceit doesn't just mean that we don't with our lips speak lies, but see here that it says that our souls are not drawn to deception and, and falsehood. This basically takes us through the entire law and says the one who can keep the law of God, that one can ascend the mountain of God. And yet none of us can do it. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. St. Paul quotes that in Romans 3, and then he starts quoting from elsewhere, and he, and he builds this case that no one in and of himself or herself can enter God's presence because of our sin. We, we read not only about hands that are not clean, but feet that are swift to shed innocent blood. Lips that have the venom of asps upon them. Lying lips. Well, this is a downer for Christmas. I'm sorry about that. So let's, let's keep reading. Because in verse 7, we find that there is someone who can enter God's presence, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is who can enter. And he is the one who was born on Christmas Day. And our only hope of going up, ascending into God's presence, is that we might go with him. That, that he might take us by the hand and lead us in and say, oh, that's okay, they're with me. You ever been in that situation where somebody who has the authority brings you somewhere you want to go uh, a few years ago, uh, my, my buddy Ted, a, a fellow writer, he was writing a book for Moody Press uh, where he listened to nothing but Christian music for a whole year. And he said, I've got a press pass to go to this big uh, Christian music festival. And you can come with me and you'll be my photographer and you'll have a press pass too. I have no idea how to take pictures. I borrowed my wife's camera. I'm like, I'm a photographer. And, and he said, oh yeah, he's with me. We've got our press passes. We're going to be able to go backstage and meet all these people. It's going to be fun. We can go in the green room. And as soon as we walked in, this like PR wonk walked up and he said, hey, you guys, you can go backstage, but there's two rules. Don't bother the VIPs. Don't talk to the VIPs. And then he turned around and walked away. I said, but I'm with him. And obviously that did nothing. Ted did not hold any water. Neither of us knew anybody. What was the point? We could go walk around back there, but not talk to anyone, not really belong? Well, just a couple years ago, my buddy got a better job. He was writing a, a, a movie. Uh, where it was, they're shooting at the Silver Dome right before they 
first tried and failed and then actually imploded the thing. And Aaron and I got to go and walk around on the set for a day because we knew him. And we had to sign all these things that if it collapsed on us, nobody would sue and all these things. And we walked in and there were all these lights and key grips and movie cameras. And I'm going, I recognize that actress from Breaking Bad. That guy was on Empire. This is crazy. And everywhere we went, there were important people with clipboards. And they sort of looked at us like, I don't think you belong here. And then my friend Ted would say, it's all right. They're with me. And they'd say, oh, okay, they're with you. They're with you. Someone who can walk us into the presence of God is our only hope. And here in the psalm, our attention shifts upward from our inability to measure up to the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. Jesus says the same thing in John 3. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And at Christmas, we celebrate God the Son coming down from his throne room to ascend the mountain of God on our behalf. And he walked up the mountain with a cross on his back, and at the top of it, he died. And then he rose again. All the while, we pulled back like Israel, afraid to even touch the hem of the mountain, lest we die. But he came down to draw us to himself knowing and wanting to communicate that the reason we exist is to love him, to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. And throughout the Christmas story, we always talk about this word, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God near us, standing back always, glaring at us, watching us fall apart, watching us try to build towers up to heaven and failing, watching us try and use him as a lucky charm like those Israelites when they took the ark out in front of them, just waiting for the right moment to crush us. Rather, Isaiah tells us he came to be crushed for us, for our iniquities, so that we could be made righteous in the sight of God. Now, as we see with them losing the Ark of the Covenant and throughout the Old Testament, yes, God does sometimes rebuke and discipline us because he loves us, but always with the intention of drawing us to himself so that we can enjoy him and glorify him, so that we can be with him because God with us means us with God. Have you heard, is what we've been listening to in the cantata, have you heard the good news that the one who goes up the mountain and the gates lift up their heads and throw themselves wide for him, says to the Father, oh yeah, they're with me, and draws us into his presence. That God with us is us with God. I'm with him. You can be with him if you've put your faith in him and believed in him for eternal life. And we enter into God's presence, not fearing that we'll be put to death like we saw there in Genesis, but rather that we would be blessed and have this relationship of blessing we read about in Psalm 24. We don't serve a God who says, from on high, if you can't get up here on your own, well, you're on your own. Rather, he says, I will come down in humility and grace, trying to climb that mountain again and again and be good enough and, and meet these criteria of clean hands, perfect lips, and a pure heart is exhausting. It is soul-crushing. It's like Sisyphus trying to push the rock continually up to the top of that mountain. But the message of Christmas is that we don't need to get to the top on our own because God came down in a little baby and said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And when he had grown, he went up that mountain to die on our behalf. If you have not put your faith in him, I call you today to do it. 
because he will take you by the hand and bring you into God's presence and you will know what it means to glorify him and enjoy him and see what it feels like to do what you were created to do and be what you were created to be. That we were created to enjoy him and glorify him, not to pile up money, to make more and more wealth, to make a splash, to, to pile up possessions or, or titles or accomplishments or influence to get more and more pleasure and experience. None of those things will get you to the top of a mountain that's worth climbing. They're all a mirage. Rather, he came down with clean hands. He came down with clean hands and they were pierced with nails. He came down with, with a pure heart and he was accused of being a blasphemer and a demon. He came down without any deceit and false witnesses lied about him and got him committed to a death on a cross, a horrible, horrible death on our behalf. And he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I came down from heaven and I go down into the grave. And then when I come back up triumphant, you can come with me. In Christ, we receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation, which is the very promise we find here. That is the message of Christmas. I hope you've heard it. If you hadn't heard it before today, I hope you've heard it now. And I hope that it draws you to a God who loves you and wants you to enjoy him and glorify him forever. Amen.